0: And we're going to turn immediately to our gospel reading, and I'll have you stand for the reading of the gospel, Um, Luke 21, verse 25 to 33. And if you've ever wondered why we stand at the reading of the gospel, it's to remember that the entire word of God is based on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Um, and it's a way to honor the content of Scripture. Luke 21, 25 to 33. Jesus says, "And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken." And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And let's just read the conclusion here. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated today. I speak to you today in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together may be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. On my way to work uh, over the last uh, couple weeks, driving, driving up Valley Road North towards Sexsmith, I've come across a great farm that for a time in early October was selling pumpkins and they had a a massive bench set up with a whole lot of small pumpkins and medium pumpkins and big pumpkins. You could drive into the field and you could buy the pumpkin of your choice. And I don't think they were altogether too successful this year because there's lots of pumpkins left. And now that it's December and the pumpkins are still there, you see them slowly shrinking as the days go by. Uh, Until now, they're just a, a rotten pile of orange. I think that, in many ways, we hope that the world's not like that. We don't want our world to be like those pumpkins. If we're honest with ourselves, many of us, at least a small part of us, were easily enchanted with the idea of humanity's inevitable progress. We're going to wax, and we're going to grow strong, and we're going to rise. The idea that things are getting better and better that we're becoming more civilized, that we're becoming more virtuous, that our technological advances are matched at least or are followed by a rise in kindness and virtue and humanity. I mean, you can't help liking that idea. You can't help wanting that vision to be true. But Scripture paints a very different picture. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 9, we get a glimpse of the things that will characterize humanity between Christ's first advent and his second advent. And what we see in chapter 9 of Revelation is a people who are consumed with idolatry, worshiping the things that they have made, worshiping the works of their hands, worshiping their iPhones, their gadgets, their cars, their homes, their wardrobes, their careers, their accomplishments, their badges, their bridges, their skyscrapers, and their cities. In fact, it's the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar, that old ancient king, standing before his ancient city and saying, Behold, is this not the glorious Babylon that I have made? And in his idolatry, Nebuchadnezzar loses Something of his humanity, he becomes like a beast. Scripture also looks at the end times and it outlines other terrible evils. It outlines humanity's sexual immorality, its theft, and its murder. When the Apostle Paul goes to speak of the last days, he says, we'll find a people who are without self-control, slanderous, brutal, treacherous, Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, he says. And when Jesus looks ahead to the experience of the church in the last days, he doesn't predict a world that's going to award the church with the MVP. He doesn't predict a world where we'll find methods and tactics in the church to make ourselves so appealing to the world that they'll rush in and they'll fill our pews and they'll throng our sanctuaries. That's not what he says about the end times. No, Jesus rather, he looks forward and he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And it's significant, I think, that Jesus doesn't say you'll be hated by some. He says, in those days you'll be hated by all. Jeremiah, God says, I'm sending you to a people who have worshipped the works of their hands. That's who they are. I want you to dress yourself for work, Jeremiah. I want you to speak to them these things. I want you, Jeremiah, to tell them that they've exchanged their glory for a lie. It's utterly worthless what they're doing, Jeremiah. And when they do this, when you do this rather to them, they're going to fight you, Jeremiah. They're going to oppose you, Jeremiah. They will hate you, but they will not prevail against you. You see, unless we root ourselves in Scripture and listen to and submit to Scripture's method, it's very easy to believe that the world isn't all that bad. We see human society in its matchless adornments. All the things that make it lovely, the beauty of the arts, the strength of industry and innovation, the animating and energizing force of technology and science, we consider humanity's profound capacity to love its instinct to kindness, its hunger for adventure and exploration, its desire to be better, its desire to do better, which is certainly there. And when we contemplate these things, it's easy, isn't it, to believe that the world isn't so bad after all, and that one day it'll finally overcome its stuntedness and its backwardness eventually. It's easy to believe this until we listen to the voice of Scripture and until we allow it to convince us rightly that we live in a world where the worship of the work of our hands has replaced the worship of the one who's made our hands. And for all these good gifts that we have, the world does not and will not acknowledge God as the end of all these things. And is the end of all praise and honor and glory. For the customs of the peoples are vanity, says the Lord. And the fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things, idols, in which there is no profit, proclaims the Lord. And what our passage proclaims to us today is that this defiantly, rebelliously idolatrous world that understands God's good gifts to be its own devising, that is imagined with vaulting pride that it can make its own gods, and that its own gods will deliver it. This world, Scripture says to us today, is headed towards the most frightful kind of judgment. For God is angry, righteously angry with the idolatry of his creation. God cannot stomach the idolatry of the world. You know, we're often altogether too trite, aren't we, with Advent? I mean, in our understanding of this season, we make it kind of a cute thing when Scripture knows nothing of the kind. The lectionary that we use is this ancient Western lectionary, and when it comes to Advent, the lectionary readings really largely have us thinking about the second coming of Jesus in view of the first. This is the, the, when the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, when will you return? The Latin word in the Vulgate is Adventus. When will you come back? Advent means the return of the Lord in his second coming. And when the lectionary readings guide us towards this, they're quite somber indeed. And so last week we had this reading from Isaiah, the scorching rebuke of the prophet towards the vanity of the nations, or particularly of Judah. And this week we hear in Advent about the end of the world. A profound shaking of all those things in which men and women mistakenly put their confidence. And so today I want to look briefly at what Jesus has to say about the end of the world. And in our passage today, Jesus really has three things to say. First of all, Jesus predicts the utter destruction of all things. Now, the springboard of our section today is in verse 5 of chapter 21. Where Luke informs us that there was a group of people admiring the temple. Mark tells us that this group of people were the disciples. Look, teacher, they say, what wonderful stones those are. What marvelous buildings those are, teacher. And it was wonderful. The temple in Jesus' time was massive. It gleamed with white stones and a gold facade. It was heavy. It was huge. It was solid. It was immovable. It was built to last. And Mark tells us as Jesus had taken his disciples and he had taken them across the Kidron Valley and he took them up the western slopes and he gives them a commanding view of that gleaming and glorious and immovable temple. And in that place, he spells out the most alarming vision, for them at least, For the near future. Verse 6 of Luke 21. As for these things that you see. That you are wondering at. That you are marveling at. The days will come. When there will be not left here. One stone upon another. That will be thrown down. Do you think this is beautiful? Look at it there. Gleaming in the city. With all of its strength. I tell you. It will not survive the coming destruction. Well, just as Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, which was destroyed in CE 70 by the Romans under Titus, so now he, not Titus, the one we've been talking about, a different Titus, so now he prophesized the destruction of the whole world. We can imagine Jesus saying to his disciples, looking at Mother Earth, Or the disciples saying to the Master, Look, Master, what an incredible world we live in. Massive, gleaming, heavy, huge, wonderful, solid, immovable, permanent, built to last. And Jesus says to them, As for these things that you see, the world in all of its strength, in all of its beauty, Nothing's going to remain. It will all be thrown down. And then Jesus goes on to describe the reaction of what the people of the earth will look like. And he says, nations in perplexity, the oceans and the seas threatening to consume us, people fainting with fear for what is coming on the world. The very powers, the planets of the heavens themselves convulsing and being shaken. I have to admit, you know, I love watching disaster flicks. I have a kind of a soft spot for these films. You know, the world uh, is ending kind of stuff. Massive earthquakes, tornadoes, floods, meteors, a new ice age, whatever it is. I mean, it's silly stuff, but I get a kick out of it. But in the film, there's always a Bruce Willis, right? There's always a hero who's going to save the day. The desperate times are met by human courage and strength. You see then how very different the message of Scripture is with the message of the world. Humanity being reduced to utter perplexity and helplessness. They can do nothing about it. Fainting with fear for what is happening to the world. NASA's not going to save the day. Our innovation and our courage can't help us. The combined strength of all the nations, they're going to fail. And I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to pan out here, but what Jesus says is that the human race is heading towards an experience of shocking vulnerability such as it has never experienced before. We felt the birth pangs, We've felt the contractions, but the experience of the end, Jesus says, will be unlike anything else. And the Lord is going to bring an utter end to the facade, to the ruse, to the guise, to the imagined strength of the self-sufficiency of the human race. The Lord's going to put an end to it all. And the whole world will quail with desperate fear for what's coming At the end of the world. Do you see that temple there? Jesus says. Do you see the temple in all of its strength and splendor? Nothing will be left. Do you see all the strength and the splendor of human civilization? The great pageant of the arts. Our monuments. Our cities. Our cultures. Our marvelous achievements. Nothing will be left the Lord says. Nothing will be left standing. Jesus predicts the end of the human race as we know it. Secondly, Jesus affirms that our response to these things should be twofold. First of all, our response to the destruction of the world should be confidence. Verse 28, when these things begin to take place, straighten up Raise your heads, he says. Now, a straight posture and an uplifted head is a posture of confidence, and it's a posture of expectation. What for the world causes fainting and foreboding and perplexity, Jesus says, causes confidence in the saints because we look for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We look for a city whose builder and whose maker is God himself. And to reinforce this sense of expectation, Jesus applies the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree loses its leaves during the winter. There's a pronounced sense of the seasons with the fig tree. And when the leaves appear, you know that summer is just around the corner. Life and warmth and joy and health are almost there. The destruction of the world, what is shockingly fearful to humanity. This is the budding of the fig tree, Jesus says. This is the appearance of the leaves. It's the token that the light and the heat and the warmth of God's kingdom, it's just around the corner. And I think using Tolkien's phrase, the end of the world is the best kind of you catastrophe. It's the bad news for humanity that is ultimately the best Possible thing. And so Jesus says, straighten up, lift your heads. What for the world is full of fear and foreboding for you is filled with matchless expectation. And the second response that Jesus has to say to us with respect to the end of the world is not expectation only, but watchfulness. We see this in verses 34 to 36. 36 where Jesus explicitly warns us of the temptation to become spiritually drowsy. It's a real warning. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, that in the presence of so many shakings and forebodings and fears that the people of God could be anything but alert (laughs) and awake. But the problem, as we see it in this passage, is that we are still... And we will still be surrounded by a people who refuse to acknowledge God even in the midst of all this suffering. This is why in verse 32, if you look at your Bibles, Jesus warns us with this phrase, this generation. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, I know that this verse has been the source and the springboard of all kinds of eschatological speculation, but the word in the Lucan sense, generation, is used time and again by Jesus to refer to an ungodly world that rejects God's kingdom. It's the defiant, it's the stubborn, it's the foolish generation that will not bow to the lordship and the kingship of God. And so in Luke 7.31, Jesus says, To what will I compare the people of this generation? They are like a people playing in the marketplace like children. Or in Luke 9.41, Jesus rebukes the faithless and the twisted generation that refuses to believe. Or in Luke 11, Jesus likens this generation to the people of Nineveh who need to hear the preaching of repentance. Or in Luke 17, Jesus specifically says that he must be rejected by this generation, a stubborn, defiant, foolish people who refuse to acknowledge the kingship of God. And so in our passage today, Jesus once again, many times, he refers to this generation, this stubborn people who refuse the kingdom of God. These, he says, will remain until the end, and they will always remain in their ungodly ways until the end. And you will be with them, he says. You will be in their presence, he says. And you must not learn their ways. You must be alert. You must be awake. You must be awaiting. Be confident. Stand up straight. Expect good things. Be vigilant. Don't be drowsy. Don't become like this generation who will always be there and refuses, Revelation 9, to repent In spite of the plagues that I send upon them, they still refuse to repent and to acknowledge God. They will be there with you to the end. Do not be like them. And finally today, Jesus promises us that his words will not fail. Jesus says now um, that his words will not fail because he knows that all appearances in this life... Leading up to the end, will suggest otherwise. Again, there's the temple across the valley. It looks so secure. It looks so strong. It looks so stable. And it's hard for us to imagine that the security of our planet is really at risk. I mean, we hear things about scientists speculating about certain meteors zigzagging across the galaxy. But it's hard. It's hard to believe that it's all going to be gone. And so Jesus comes to us today as the very embodiment of truth itself. He comes as the voice of truth. And he says this, that his word will surely come to pass. And his word will not be shaken. The world will be shaken, he says. My words will not. And therefore, he says, don't let the apparent peace of the world fool you. Don't let the apparent success of the world fool you. Don't let anything persuade you that the whole world and all that's in it, it's shopping malls, it's theaters, it's institutions, it's levels of politics, don't let anything in this life deceive you into believing that it's going to remain. None of this, he says, will stand. It won't stay. Heaven and earth, he says, are going to pass away. My brothers and sisters, heaven and earth are going to pass away. My word, Jesus says, will come true. Therefore, today, believe his words. Don't spend your time investing in those things that aren't going to last. Don't spend your tokens Don't spend your talents on things that are going to be shaken and dissolved. Don't do it, Jesus says. Listen to my words. Spend your time in those things that are going to last forever. So Augustine writes to us, there's another life, brothers and sisters. Believe me, he says, there is another life after this. And Augustine says, let us therefore make light of what he's given us here. So that we might come to greater things thereafter. Let us make light of these things. God's given you stuff here, Augustine says, fine, but use it for there. Make light of it here. Be confident, be vigilant, be believing. The words of our Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.